Please join me in prayer as we uh, come and listen to God's word to us here. And now may the words that are found on my lips and the meditation in our hearts bring you praise and glory. Amen. Let my people go. Now that's not a phrase that we hear very often in our present day context, isn't it? Well, on a slightly lighter and perhaps a more humorous note, uh, that's actually something that I get to hear once in a while. Uh, as some of you know, I lecture at Trinity Theological College, and every now and then, uh, whenever my lectures overrun, uh, sometimes I will get a WhatsApp message from the other students, huh? and they go something like, Dr. Fong, let my people go. <laughs> to be fair, sometimes when it's the other way around, when the students are holding me back with the questions, uh, they will get a message from their classmates. Let my lecturer go. <laughs> but lighthearted humor aside, we don't really hear this statement made in a serious context today, isn't it? Except right now, maybe in Myanmar, with all the protests by the citizens against the military's assumption of government, I won't be surprised that the slogan that motivates them, you know, to take to the streets and all the demonstrations and everything, the slogan could well be this one. Let our people go. Yet this phrase, let my people go, could really serve as an apt summary of the first section, to be precise, the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. And certainly this phrase, let my people go, serves as an apt summary for these chapters concerning the 10 plagues before us today. For that is why God sent the plagues on Egypt, to let his people go. Now, it's a long passage. It actually consists of four chapters. So normally, uh, all the preachers in the ARPC, whenever we get anything more than three chapters, we go, oh no, how are we going to preach this? Okay? Um, yeah, because we're all very used to uh, systematically and sequentially plowing through the chapters in, 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 the, in the scriptures. Yeah, so rather than doing that today, I thought that it would be more fruitful for our time together if I just draw out three points from these chapters for us to reflect together this morning. Huh? So three things that the plagues reveal to us. So in this way, I'm actually borrowing from my, um, uh, my, my, my previous uh, uh, heritage. Uh, I actually grew up in a Methodist church. Huh? And uh, in a Methodist church, they are very famous for their three-point sermons. Okay? So I'll be giving us a three-point sermon today. So point number one, can you please show the slides? Yep. The plagues reveal that God is serious about his covenant with his people. <clears throat> so let's refer back to two crucial passages which show this point for us. Next slide. Let allow me to read that for us. That's uh, Exodus 3, 7 to 10. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the uh, hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
Another passage that refers to is that that is found in chapter 6. Chapter 6. Next slide. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Yeah. Thank you. Can turn that off? Now, these two sets of passages are important in setting for us the context by which to understand the purpose of why God sent the plagues. It's all in the context of God fulfilling His purposes with His people, to be in covenantal relationship with them, to be, as the passage tells us, to be their God and the people His people. Yeah? Some scholars have suggested that the book of Exodus can really be summarized by three R's. Revelation, rescue, and relationship. And I think they're pretty spot on. Yeah? That when we look at the book of Exodus as a whole, we can say that in there, God reveals Himself to His people and rescues His people for covenantal relationship with Him. That's what we see in Exodus 6, 2-3, the passage that we have just read. God states that He has revealed Himself thus far as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the Israelites' most highly esteemed patriarchs and forefathers. That's how He has revealed Himself so far, as their God. But now... He was going to reveal himself to all the people of Israel as I am the Lord, Yahweh. And in the knowing of God as Yahweh, the Israelites were going to discover that this God is serious about fulfilling the covenantal promises that he made to their forefathers. For every single Israelite, the God of their forefathers was about to become their God, the God who is in relationship with them personally, each and every single individual Israelite. But there was a problem. And that is, the revelation of God to the Israelites that He wants to be in relationship with them would mean that the second R is needed. Rescue. Why? Because it's, we just look at the passage, we can tell the Israelites were in slavery. They were in agony under the burden of their slavery to the Egyptians. They were crying out under the weight of their oppression. And really, being in slavery, being in bondage, meant that even as God has just revealed 
that he wants to be in a personal covenantal relationship with them, this relationship was not going to be something that the average Israelite could just walk into or step right in. But being in slavery, they first needed to be delivered. They needed to be rescued. And this rescue sets the primary context for the plagues. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Exodus 6, 6. So applying this first point to us this morning, as we think about it, that's an important thing to figure out in life, isn't it? Why we are in the very relationships that we are in. What's in it for us? Huh? So take as example, just take as example, um, as a pastor, why do I want to be in a relationship with you as the congregational member? I mean, there could be a whole host of reasons. And truth be told, both pure and not so pure reasons, right? So maybe because I see this as a responsibility that God has given to me, because I enjoy your presence and company, because I love you and desire for you to grow in Christ. Now, these are good and noble reasons. But there could also be reasons that are not so pure, isn't it, right? Because ministering to you makes me feel good about myself and builds up my self-worth because you help me feed my desire for control and grabs of power. Now, these are reasons that are not right and which any pastor will have to constantly allow God's Spirit to search through him or her, even as we serve our living God. And if we do have moments where we have entertained these reasons, we need to repent, right? But the essence of the question is, what do I want with you. Exodus shows us what God wants with us, each and every single one of us. Us listening, sitting here listening to the sermon, us listening to the podcast of this sermon later, even those of us who may be hearing of this God for the very first time, Exodus shows us that like the Israelites, God wants to be in covenantal relationship with us, with you and with me. He has only one purpose, and his purpose is fully good, fully pure, not mixed like, 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 like the human motives and purposes that we have. But his purpose is purely good with you and me, as he did with the Israelites back then. And that is to bless us, to draw us, to invite us into relationship with Him. And like the Israelites, there's only one problem that stands in the way. We are in slavery, in debt, in bondage. No, I'm not referring to financial debt, okay? So the other day, uh, I heard someone whom I knew um, who had just bought his new home and he jokingly said, you know, oh, I just bought my new home. I've just joined the CLD. I'm like, huh? What's CLD? It's the Club of Lifetime Debt huh? that many of us in, in Singapore are, are part of. Yeah? I'm not referring to that kind of debt. I'm referring to the slavery and debt of our sinful natures, 
our inward and naturally born propensity to be rebellious against God, our inward and naturally born inclination to turn against the very one who gave us life and to demand to grasp that life for ourselves. I'm referring to that slavery and that sin as a slave master. And like the Israelites, unless God rescues us, there is no way that you and I are going to just step right into this relationship with God, even as He reveals Himself to us. Rescue is central to God's revelation of Himself to be in relationship with us. The next slide. And that is the second point. The plagues reveal that God fights for His people against their enemies. Thank you. Can turn that off. That's the second thing that is revealed about the plagues. God fights for His people. He rouses for them. He roots for them. He will fight for them. That's what the plagues are about. God sending a clear signal to His enemies who stand in the way of God fulfilling His purposes for His people. And that clear message is, don't mess with me. Now, the ten plagues are described for us in chapters 7 to 11, with the last plague being described in greater detail all the way through chapters 11 to chapter 13. And the ten plagues are, I just named them for us, firstly, the plague on the river now, turning water into blood, the plague of frogs, third, the plague of gnats, fourth, the plague of flies, which we read in our responsive reading, five, the plague on the livestock. Six, the plague of balls. Seven, the plague of hail. Eight, the plague of locusts. Nine, the plague of darkness. And finally, ten, the plague of the firstborn. Now, it's really quite hard for us to picture how the plagues must have been like, right? So, um, one way is to read through the four chapters, uh, which I really hope that uh, we, we can do that in our own Bible reading time. But another way that perhaps uh, helps to present the plagues to us uh, in in an imaginative way um, is for me to enlist the help of Hollywood. In this case, the 1998 movie Prince of Egypt by DreamWorks. Now, granted, of course, granted, of course, that um, DreamWorks took liberty in setting the relationship between Pharaoh and Moses as half-brothers, okay? That's how the, the, the movie portrayed their relationship. Now, we are never told that in Scripture, but uh, granted that, 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 that imaginative uh, license that we give to them, I think the portion where God releases the plagues on Egypt does help us to imagine how it must have been like for the Egyptians back then. So maybe I just invite you to sit back and we can just play that, that, that movie clip and dim the lights a bit. Thank you. Once I called you brother, 
once I thought the chance to make you laugh was all I ever wanted. And even now, I wish that God had chose another, serving as your foe on his behalf. It's the last thing that I wanted. How it tortures me inside All the innocent who suffer From your stubbornness and pride You I called brother Why must you call down another blow? You have come to hate me so. Is this what you wanted? Then let my heart be hardened, and never mind how high the cost may grow. This will still be so. I will never let your Thank you. Yeah. It's quite a dynamic presentation, right? Yeah. You know, as I was, I was watching that, I was thinking, oh, too bad this isn't family service. Otherwise, uh, you can have uh, Pastor Jason and Pastor Adrin, you know, singing, let my people go. Huh? Yeah, maybe another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, that's as best as a visual display that I think you can get. Um, yep. The other thing that I can do to help us see the overview of the plagues is really to show us this table. So I call upon the next. It's a bit small. Um, yeah, so maybe if you have your cameras, you might just want to take a snapshot of it and then you can magnify it on your, on your screens. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, this is actually taken from uh, Peter Ernst, uh, the uh, NIVAC, the uh, New International Version Application Commentary. And I think in there he has uh, summarized for us the, the plagues quite well. So if you refer to the table, firstly, you'll notice that uh, the first column, it shows you the different plagues. Yep. And the first one is actually a sign. It's considered more a sign, and that is the sign where um, Moses threw down his staff and it became that of a snake. Huh? That, that's considered more of a sign. And then after that, it's followed by the ten plagues. Okay. And the different columns um, you can see is, is how they classify the different plagues. Are the magicians able to reproduce the plague? Um, do the magicians or caught back for, for, for relief, okay? Or Pharaoh himself begs for uh, a relief. And then the next uh, three columns after that is, uh, is it Pharaoh hardening his heart? Is it Pharaoh's heart becoming hard? Or is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart, yeah? And then the column after that is uh, the distinction between Israel and Egypt, which are the plagues that have this clear distinction. And... Um, the next two columns is uh, early morning confrontation. Uh, does the confrontation happen in the morning or does it happen in the palace? And then last two columns have to do with uh, whose staff is it by which the uh, plagues are, uh, are sent. Okay? Is it by Aaron's staff or is it by Moses' staff? Yeah? 
So just to highlight some points from there, um, as, as we keep that slide on, firstly, you notice that the Egyptians' uh, magicians are able to reproduce the sign and the first two plagues, right? That is the snake and uh, the sign of the snake, as well as the plague on the now and, and the plague on the frogs, okay? Um, but after that, they are no longer able to reproduce the plagues. They can't do it anymore, okay? So what's the reason? Now, one possible explanation, as the commentators explain, is that the power source of the Egyptians' magic it is uh, said to come from the river now. And that's why once it comes to the plague of the nets onwards, Egyptians, uh, Egypt's uh, magicians are no longer able to conjure their magic and power. Okay? It is out of their element, so to speak, not within their domain. Yeah? But not so for God, because God is overall ruler over creation itself. Yeah? Then also with the plagues, some of them we are explicitly told that there is a separation or distinction between Egypt and Israel. Others, uh, we may have to defer from our reading or it is not mentioned. Yeah? But either way, God shows his power from the plagues. God's power is shown not just in him sending the plagues, but in him being able to recede, to take back the plagues, yeah? And more than that, also that God is able to direct where the plague should happen. So specifically, yeah? um, so it's like uh, maybe in modern warfare, when you talk about those missiles that we use, they can zoom in right to the actual GPS coordinates huh? and things like that. So that is, all this is within God's power, yeah? So the plagues are no random happening, that once God unleashes, it is out of his hands. No, but God is in control every step of the way. Okay? Then the last thing that's interesting from this table is also there is a shift in terms of whose staff the plagues are triggered from. In the beginning, if you look at the table, you notice it is from Aaron's staff. And then by the time you move to the later plagues, it is from Moses' staff. I think this shows to us God accommodating Moses' request. Remember Moses initially was a bit hesitant? He said, you know, have Aaron, I can't speak and everything, and God accommodates to Moses. And so Aaron is Moses' mouthpiece. Huh? But as we see Moses doing more and more of this task that God has given him, in a sense, we also see Moses growing into carrying out this task. Yeah? Such that by the time we reach the later plagues, Moses' staff is able to bring forth the plagues. Huh? And this teaches us that very often God, in using his servants to carry out his purposes, he will also use that occasion to mow his servants, to grow his servants. Okay? Thank you. You can turn it off for now. Two more points I just want to add about the plagues as an overview. Firstly, the plagues can be seen as a direct confrontation of powers, right? It's a clash of the gods, you can say. Yeah? The one true god of Israel versus the polytheistic gods of Egypt, very often symbolized by Pharaoh. So some scholars have looked into the different plagues and suggested how each plague is a direct challenge to the polytheistic gods of Egypt. So for example, the first slide. The plague on the river now is against the Egyptian gods Kunum and Hapi. So if you look at Kunum here and Hapi here, okay, the next one. 
Yep, you can see that they are all gods associated with the Nile River. Okay? And then the next one. The plague of frogs is against the Egyptian god Haket. Okay? Haket is uh, the Egyptian goddess of fertility. And if you look at the picture, it's very often represented in the form of a frog. Yeah? Um, the next slide. The plague on the livestock is against the Egyptian god Hathor. Yeah, Hathor is a major goddess in ancient Egyptian religion, played a wide variety of roles. It's a sky deity. But the second point is where I want to draw your attention to. Hathor was often depicted as a cow, symbolizing her maternal and celestial aspect. Okay, so that, that's the... And then the last one, the plague of darkness is against the Egyptian god Ra. Yeah, and Ra was believed to be identified primarily with the sun, the noon sun. Okay, um, thanks, you can turn it off, yep. I have to thank uh, Pastor Kenneth, uh, he was the one that uh, sent me all those slides, uh, yep, um, in there. So I think generally there's some truth to this point that um, in a sense it was God versus the Egyptian gods, yeah, there's some truth to this point, but we just have to be careful not to overpress the point and uh, end up forcefully categorizing each plague as a challenge against a certain Egyptian deity. Okay, we just have to be careful <clears throat> not to um, uh, uh, try to fit the whole passage to fit this scheme. Okay? Uh, but certainly, I think the plagues overall do act as a combat or showdown against the Egyptian polyistic gods to show that Yahweh is the one true God. And surely in that way, the plagues on Egypt would have contributed to the Shema that the Israelites were to memorize and recite in their national life later. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah? I'm sure that the plagues on Egypt versus all the polytheistic gods would have contributed to that. Yeah? I think clearer is the fact that some of the plagues, as read within the whole story of Exodus so far, Remind us and serve to confront the earlier actions of Pharaoh. I think that is quite clear from the passage. So, for example, example, remember the, um, the first Pharaoh, okay, his command in Exodus chapter 1, he wanted to throw the Israelite baby boys into the river now, right? And now the river now actually serves as an instrument of death for the Egyptians. Another example the very kills of furnaces that the Israelites were commanded to work hard in producing straw. Remember Exodus 5? Pharaoh said, no more straw for you. You have to make your own straw. And that would mean that the Israelites would have to spend a lot of time in the furnaces getting that straw. Right? Now, those very kills and furnaces were now the places that produced and led to the plague of balls. So if we look at Exodus 9, the plague of balls, God actually commands Moses to go and take some soot from those uh, kills, throw it into the air, and it became balls on the Egyptians. Okay? And lastly, the plague of the firstborn was a direct challenge to Pharaoh who tried to kill the firstborn son of every Israelite in Exodus 1. So you can say that through the plagues, Poetic justice is served. Okay. Second thing I think is that it sh the plagues clearly show us 
is the idea that God, in confronting Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, he uses creation to accomplish his purpose. In fact, one could even say that God, in using creation, actually reverses creation in order to bring about salvation for his people. Right? And that salvation is described as nothing less than a new creation. So the plague on the now, you can see it as turning a source of life, water, into death, blood. The plagues of the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the locusts, all of this turn the animal kingdom against humans when humans are supposed to rule over um, uh, creation, right? The plague of the nets, which came from the dust of the earth. Now, the last time something came from the dust of the earth in Genesis 1 was something beautiful. Man, human beings, and not something destructive like the nets. The plague of livestock, which brings death to the animals. The plague of darkness, where darkness overtakes the light. Now, all of these can be seen as a reversal of creation itself, right? And it goes to show us that God is the one true creator God who can use creation in service of redemption. So Peter Ernst, in his commentary, I think he highlights this point well. And let me read that for us. In the abstract, one can imagine God using a variety of other means to bring Egypt to its knees, ways that have biblical precedence elsewhere. He could have sent an angel dressed in armour and girded with sword. He could have used a foreign army as his pawn to plunder. But this was not the tactic he takes. He chooses, rather, to fight with weapons that no one but he has at his disposal and that only he can command. After all, what defence is there against the forces of creation itself? This series of attacks on Egypt removes all doubt as to who the victor will be. Thank you. And of course, God's sovereign choice of using creation to secure the deliverance and salvation of his people will be seen most clearly two weeks' time, the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites. So the plagues teach us clearly who is this God. He is the one who fights for his people. He is the one who will do all that is needed to free his people from whatever that is holding them back from being in relationship with him. If it is Pharaoh, then he will fight against Pharaoh and win. If it's the Egyptian gods, then he will fight against those gods and win. And what is true for the Israelites is also true for us, his New Testament people. So what is holding us back from relationship with God? If it is Satan, God will fight against Satan and win. If it is our bondage to sin, God will fight against sin. If it is our sinful natures, God will deliver us from our sinful natures and recreate in us new natures that we may go and serve and worship and follow the living God. And not only that, but it is also the same God who will stop at nothing 
to secure our final deliverance in Christ our Lord. So is it sickness and diseases holding us back? Christ will fight for us and win. Is it our immense struggle with sin that we feel so hopeless at times? Christ will fight for us and win. Is it death itself or perhaps the fear of death that grips us? Christ will fight for us and win. This is why in Romans chapter 8, it ends with that beautiful assurance and reminder this is our God in Jesus Christ who fights for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, dear friends, and be assured this morning, this is the God who fights for His people. Point three. The plagues reveal that God's hand of salvation is also His hand of judgment. I think this point is fairly clear to us by now. <clears throat> the same hand of God that acts to secure salvation and deliverance for His people is also the same hand of God that brings judgment on His enemies. Exodus 6.6 I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts. Of judgment. See, the question that is posed before you and me is, whose side are you on? Are we on the side of God's beloved people, the Israelites, who received the revelation of seeing the weight of God's glory in Him fighting for them, Him delivering them? Or are we sadly on the side of God's enemies, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, who likewise witnessed the weight of God's glory in Him carrying out His judgment upon them. <clears throat> I know that some of us at this point would think, wait a minute, you know, Pastor, wait, wait a minute. Pharaoh never had the choice. He never had the chance to be on a different side. He was predestined to judgment and damnation. Now, I want to say that the scripture presentation of it is actually slightly more nuanced, okay? So if you look at the table that I presented earlier, if you look at the table, the plague narratives describe Pharaoh's response in varying ways. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Pharaoh's heart is hardened without specifying who does the hardening. Okay? And lastly, <clears throat> God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And all this time, there is a preamble to all this hardening that is mentioned first in Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Yeah, thank you. 
So I think scripture presents things in a way that doesn't conflate the difficulties or flatline the tension, but rather scripture affirms both and allows the tension to remain. So whichever theological framework that we adopt in reading these passages, um, be it a Calvinistic or more Reformed framework that emphasizes God's sovereignty and his decree in hardening Pharaoh's heart, or whether a more Armenian framework that emphasizes Pharaoh's own choice in hardening his own heart. Friends, we must not allow our theological frameworks to blunt and completely remove the tension. But instead, our theological framework must always affirm the presence of both God's sovereignty as well as our response and responsibility. Does the tension remain? It does. Yeah? Are we comfortable with the tension? We certainly are not. We much prefer a clear, straightforward answer, but that is not what God has revealed to us. That is not what Scripture reveals to us. Yeah? But Scripture reveals both, and we need to affirm both. Yeah? And because we are always involved in our response to God and His Word and His revelation revealed to us, and because that genuinely is our response. So let us respond with faith and belief to God, and in that way experience His hand as His hand of salvation. Let us be careful not to fall slowly but surely into stubbornness and disbelief, and sadly in that way experience the same hand of God as His hand of judgment. But as it was for the Israelites back then, may it be the same for us now. Complete wow and worship at the God who will go all out and stop at nothing to fight for His people, to deliver them and to bring them into the fullness of His relationship with us. Amen. Let us pray. I'd like to give us a moment of silence just to reflect upon what we have heard and some of the things that the Lord may be speaking to us in His Word. Thank you, God, that you are indeed the God who has said, let my people go. And that by those very words, you have shown yourself and revealed yourself to be a God who is fully serious about covenantal relationship with us. That you are the God who will do all that is needed and will stop at nothing in order to bring us into the fullness of that covenantal relationship with you. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you that indeed as we see the plagues released on Egypt, that this is proof, this is a sign, this is a reminder that you are the God who indeed will bring us all the way to the end to secure our full and final deliverance. So we pray, O oh Lord, even as we have heard your word, even as we have been reminded, that we may respond as we should and as is genuinely our response, 
that we may respond with belief and trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you and pray all this in his mighty name. Amen.